why the Catholic Church has come to call the Virgin Mary the Mother of God, what the meaning of that term is, how it's related to the confession of the Church's faith regarding Christ, and how it's related to the Church's understanding of the Virgin Mary as Mother of the Church. Or at least I might get a little bit to that idea. So it's actually a rather interesting historical topic, and it's a somewhat sophisticated topic theologically when you get into the you might say, into the, the depths of it. And I'm going to try to do that in the simplest and sort of deepest way possible. And I really just want to start with two basic theological ideas in Scripture. And then I move from those kind of ideas in Scripture into an analysis from Fathers of the Church and Thomas Aquinas. The two ideas in Scripture are the idea of what's called the communication of idioms, to formal term, which means the attribution of names or the designation of attributes to Christ and the notion of the personal holiness of the Virgin Mary. Effectively, when the church later in the fifth century starts to speak regularly about the Virgin Mary as in Greek Theotokos or uh, as the mother of God in English, the, the designation communicates something about her relationship to Christ as the God human or God man, and something about her own personal holiness. So I want to just start with the scriptural root, you might say, or foundation of those two ideas. So the first idea of the communication of idioms, which you may never have heard of, but is a problem in theology, could be illustrated by reading 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8. We speak of the mysterious and hidden wisdom of God, Paul writes, which he destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, Paul here talks about crucifying the Lord of glory. And that raises the question, does Paul implicitly suggest here that God himself was crucified? Can we say God was crucified or the Lord God was crucified because Jesus is Lord, i.e. Jesus is both God and human. So is it right to say that God is crucified? As we'll see, the church will vindicate that claim and say, in a qualified sense that is rigorously true to say. And you may say, what has that got to do with the mother of God? Well, as it turns out, everything. Because you also find this uh, similar kind of language in Luke 1, 43, during the so-called visitation, when the Virgin Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and the Virgin Mary is with child. And scripture reads um, that Elizabeth responds to the Virgin Mary's new presence at the pregnant Virgin Mary's presence when her child, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb. And she says, Elizabeth says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? They crucified the Lord of glory. The mother of my Lord has come to me. So in these in these ascriptions of scripture, it seems overtly because you're using the name Lord, which can refer to the Lord God of Israel that you're designating Christ as Lord, Christ as God, effectively, and then saying in, in, in implicitly, but rather clearly, that God the Lord was crucified because Christ was crucified, or the Virgin Mary is the mother of the Lord, i.e. the mother of God. Is that right to say? Can we speak that way? Why would we speak that way? Okay, so that's going to be the first question we're going to look at down the line. The second um, theme in scripture that's related to the Virgin Mary in this respect is the idea that she's full of grace and obedient to God in a exemplary way. And you find this idea, or at least the seeds of this idea, expressed also in Luke's gospel, just uh, some uh, verses before in the Annunciation scene, which precedes the visitation. And there you've heard this, perhaps, if you're somewhat you know biblically or liturgically literate you know you've maybe heard this uh often in the sixth month the angel gabriel was sent from god to a city of galilee named nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was joseph of the house of david and the virgin's name was mary and he the angel came to her and said hail highly graced one it's a it's a verb tense in greek that can mean uh hail you most uh, perfectly graced one or as Jerome translated it into Latin, uh, 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 gratia plena, hail, um, full of grace. There's different ways to render the Greek, but it, it's a fairly strong term. 
Hail, highly graced one or fully graced one, the Lord is with you. And the Virgin Mary goes on to question what the nature, the nature of the angelic salutation is. And, and after understanding, seeking to understand, as Augustine says, she sought in faith to understand, she says, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to thy word, which symbolizes that sort of structure of obedience under grace. And you say, well, okay, that seems like you're reading a lot into the obedience act. Well, be careful. You just had before this the Annunciation scene to Zechariah, and Zechariah questioned in a skeptical way, and he sub was subject to a kind of a, a a penal silencing by the angel until the birth of John the Baptist. So it's sort of like a, a visual diptych. You have on the one side Zechariah's skeptical, disobedient, mm, skeptic, difficulty believing in a miracle, and then you have the Virgin Mary seeing if the angel is really from God and then consenting to the, the, the will of the Lord. So uh, this this scenario has been greatly scrutinized, as more than one can say about it. There's a reference to the Virgin Mary's own belief in her virginity, the importance of her virginity, because she says, how shall this be, for I know a husband? And then the angel speaks to her of the, of the Holy Spirit's coming upon her. So there's a lot in here theologically. And when the fathers of the church, even from the second century, look at this passage, they speak of the exemplary obedience and holiness of the Virgin Mary, which is a common faith belief of the Catholic Church in the second century already. So in Irenaeus's Against Heresies, uh, book three, chapter 22, section four, famous text, Irenaeus in about the 180s, uh, writing in France, is part of the Roman Empire in Lyon, says, um, the Vir Mary the Virgin is found obedient, saying, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. But Eve was disobedient, for she did not obey when she was as yet a virgin. Also did Mary, by yielding obedience, become the cause of salvation, both to herself and the whole human race. And he continues a little bit down further. For what the Virgin Eve had bound fast through unbelief, this did the Virgin Mary set free through faith. So it's interesting. Irenaeus sets up the connection in the passage at large between Jesus as the new Adam, uh, obedient under temptation uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the Gospels, contrasted with the old Adam who was disobedient under temptation. And then he compares and contrasts the Virgin Mary, obedient in the Annunciation, full of grace, with the disobedience of Eve. So it's just a testimony to the fact that in the second century, when you have someone speaking in the name of the faith, in the face of the Gnostic heresy, trying to identify what is the apostolic faith. The Virgin Mary is at the heart of this, depicted as the, the new Eve, who through her faith and obedience is a portal through whom God has introduced a new life in Christ into the world, an obedience that the church herself enters into. Well, you could say a lot more about early uh, Mariology or earlier beliefs about the, the Virgin Mary and how they developed and what different themes were, different titles, ideas like the new Eve, the Immaculate Conception, uh, and the fullness of the grace of the Virgin Mary as disciple of Christ. But our task is to look forward to the notion of the Virgin Mary as the mother of God. Now, where does that come from, and why is it important? Both these issues are going to come up, but especially the first, the so-called communication of idioms. Now, the title, strictly speaking, is in Greek, Theotokos. It means literally God-bearer, or she who bore God in her womb. And it's a liturgical title that arose in the Greek-speaking liturgy in the regions of Constantinople, Alexandria, the areas that are now today Egypt and Turkey, when those were early Christian communities. In fact, they became great seas of Christianity in the 4th and 5th century. We don't know exactly when that title entered into the liturgy, when people of God, the common faithful began to refer to her as Theotokos, but we know it was uh, certainly prior to the 420s and 430s because it had become a customary title by the 420s. So effectively what happened was a great controversy broke out in the, in the whole church, especially in the Eastern church, um, in the Greek-speaking church of the East, as opposed to the Latin-speaking church of the West, in around 429. And this occurred because the then Archbishop of Constantinople, which was the capital of the empire since the time of Constantine, sometimes called the Second Rome, and which was the site of one of the most important archbishoprics in the world, in that 
locale, Nestorius, the Archbishop of Constantinople, began to write against the use of Theotokos as a title for the Virgin Mary in the liturgy. In other words, we ought not to call the Virgin Mary Theotokos or God-bearer or mother of God, but instead we should call her the Christ-bearer, the mother of Christ. Now it turns out behind this, Nestorius had a whole theory, not just about the Virgin Mary, but more deeply, more fundamentally, about Jesus himself. So I need to explain a little bit what Nestorius is going for, because often he's ridiculed or caricatured or attacked and said to be someone who didn't believe the Virgin Mary was the mother of God, didn't believe the right things about Jesus. It's true his views are condemned, and it's also true there are problems in his ways of speaking. But I want to explain a little bit who he's reacting against and what he's going for to try to make sense of it. So prior to the fourth century, there was the most famous Christological heresy and quarrel of all time, the, the church's uh, reckoning with Arianism, initiated really by Arius, a priest of Alexandria in the fourth century. And Arius had taught very simply that Jesus is not God. He's a creature. He's not God, the word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son made man. He is a creature through and through. And uh, you also had a reaction against him by another resident of the Alexandria region who is named Apollinarius, who is a bishop. And Apollinarius says Jesus is God. He is the word made flesh. But Jesus, because he's God, does not have a human soul. Okay, so prior to the stories, you've got one fellow who says Jesus is not God, but merely a creature. And you've got another fellow who says Jesus is truly God, and God truly took on human flesh, but he did not take on a full human nature. He did not take on a human soul. Okay, so these are both what are called, you know, in Greek heresies, misleading teachings. So Nestorius is reacting against both these ideas, and he says, look at, look at, gentlemen, Jesus is truly God. He has a divine nature. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, as the Nicene Creed teaches. He's the eternal son of God. And Jesus is truly human. He has a human nature, a body, and a soul. If he has two natures, then in a certain sense, he is also two subjects, two, he says in Greek, prosopoi. That word can be translated to persons. Okay, so two personal subjects. If he's truly God and truly human, he's two personal subjects, the eternal word, who's truly God, and the man Jesus, who's truly human. So Nestorius wants to protect the divinity of Christ as real and the humanity of Christ as real. And he wants to say there's two natures in Christ, which is all very good and fine. But what he ends up saying is, in effect, there are then two persons or subjects in Christ, the eternal word and son of God, who's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, and the man Jesus. Now, the Virgin Mary is the mother of the man Jesus, but he does not want to say she's the mother of the eternal word, the eternal son of God. Why does he want to say that? Well, he thinks that if you say that she's the mother of the eternal son of God or the mother of the eternal word of God, you are also, in effect, saying she's the mother of the nature, the, not, the divine nature of the eternal son. In other words, the Virgin Mary would be the mother of the deity. She would give birth to the Godhead, to God himself in his deity. And that, the story says, is mythology. He says that's like the pagan beliefs of the Greco-Romans with their stories about gods being born from other gods. According to the flesh, it's anthropomorphic, it's idolatrous, it's crazy. We shouldn't believe these irrational things. Yeah, so Nestorius has got lots of, he's got lots of reasonable enemies or opposing viewpoints that he wants to contest. The problem is with his solution. In order to say that God in his deity was not born in time, the Virgin Mary did not give birth to the deity, he wants to deny that the, that the Virgin Mary is the mother of the word incarnate or the mother of the son of God. So the basic, if you look at it retrospectively in light of later orthodoxy as it emerges, the error is he thinks that there's a kind of a absolute isomorphism or a mapping onto a, a person in nature. So whatever you say of the nature must be said of the person, whatever you say of the person must be said of the nature. So if, if the Virgin Mary is the mother of the person of the son, the eternal son made man, the word made flesh, if she's the mother of the person, she must also be the mother of the divine nature. So that's the error. She can be the mother of the person 
in his human nature or in virtue of his human nature, his flesh, his body as a human being, that doesn't mean she's the mother of his Godhead or his divine nature. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, I'm kind of with you, but I didn't quite get that. Or I'm kind of with you, but I'm not really with you. Or I kind of got that, but can you say it again? Well, that's what we're going to do. Enter Cyril of Alexandria. Now, Cyril of Alexandria was the Archbishop of Alexandria, Egypt, and was, in a certain sense, the great contestant who fought with Nestorius. Well, he started off by writing him three famous letters of dispute, and then he ended up leading a council in association with the Pope in Rome. He led a council in Ephesus, which is, of course, today in Turkey, and he had Nestorius' teaching condemned, and they uh, affirmed at that council that the Virgin Mary is the mother of God. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Let's back up. How does Cyril of Alexandria respond to Nestorius? He says, look it, you need to get back to the core mystery of Christianity, which is the incarnation. Why, how should we understand this mystery? Cyril here speaks about what he calls a hypostatic union. Now, hypostasis is another technical term. It means basically concrete person. So hypostasis in your ordinary life is if you live with people in your house named, like, say, Jim and Rebecca and your their child, Andrew, and your their other child, Sarah. Okay, each of them is a hypostasis uh, and a concrete individual subject. And what uh, Cyril wants to say is it, when you look at Jesus Christ and say, who is that? There's one who, one individual subject, one hypostasis. That person there, who is that person? Jesus is the person of the eternal word made flesh. He is the eternal son of God, eternally begotten of the father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Who is Jesus personally? Who is that hypostatically, that concrete subject? That is the second person of the Trinity, God made human. Okay? So when you point at Jesus and think concretely about who that person is, you are talking about the eternal word. There's only one person in God and that in, in the incarnation, only one person in the incarnation, not two. And that person is the, the uh, eternal person of the second person of the Trinity. Okay, so against Nestorius, Cyril insists, and this becomes orthodoxy in the Catholic Church, there's one personal subject in the incarnation, one person, one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is God. The person is divine. So if you want to avoid errors here from the point of view of Catholic Orthodoxy, you don't want to say that Jesus is a human person. You can say Jesus has a perfect human nature, but you don't want to say he's a human person. He's a divine person, the second person of the Trinity. But then what what Cyril goes on to say is Jesus assumed a true and complete humanity, body and soul, against Apollinarius and with Nestorius. Jesus is truly human. He has a complete human nature as as a body and having a body and soul like us. And Jesus is truly God. Okay, he's truly God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's truly human with us, being a man like us in all things except sin. What this means is when we speak about Jesus in the so-called use of the communication of idioms, we can ascribe things to Jesus's to Jesus in virtue of his divine nature and in virtue of his human nature. But we always describe them to one person who is the eternal son of God made human. So, for example, we can say Jesus Christ is God who created all things. And you have to qualify that and say insofar as he's the eternal son of God, one with the father and the Holy Spirit, one person, the Trinity. Jesus is the author of all things, the creator. Or as it says in the book of Acts, in the, in, yeah, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, you crucified the author of life. That's what Peter says in Jerusalem. You crucify the author of life. Well, the author of life is God. Right? So you can say things of Jesus insofar as he's God. You can also say things insofar, of him insofar as he's human. You can say Jesus was born in a cave or a manger, whichever it is, whichever tradition you follow. He was born in a cave in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. So now we're saying things are true of Jesus as insofar as he's God and insofar as he's human. Here's the second thing about that. We're not saying 
that things that are true of the human nature are true of the divine nature or the divine nature true of the human nature. So we're not saying that Jesus's human nature is eternal and omnipresent. Jesus in his human nature was born in time like one of us, as one of us. Jesus was crucified and died in time as we die. Okay, Jesus as God doesn't suffer, Cyril says. The divinity of Christ doesn't suffer on the cross. Jesus suffers on the cross in his human nature, not his divine nature. His divine nature is not born of Mary. He's born of Mary in his human nature. Okay, so if you are following me, the first rule is everything said of the human natures or the divine natures, these two what's, what is in Jesus, human nature, and divine nature. Both these what's are said of one who. It's always described to one person. Who is God? Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Who is human? Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Who died on the cross? Jesus. Who created the stars? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, as Son and Lord, created the stars. Okay, so you can talk this way by ascribing all things to one subject, the eternal person, the Word, who is both God and man. Second rule, you can't say the things of human nature are ascribed directly to divine nature, or things of divine nature are ascribed directly to human nature. Third rule, however, is you can speak of Jesus as a subject under the aspect of a nature. So like, let's say you, you looked at me and you said, oh, priest, would you hear my confession? Um, every priest is happy to hear your confession, of course. So you, what are you saying there? You don't say, Thomas Joseph, will you hear my confession? That's my name as a subject. You call me under the aspect of a characteristic or a nature, like someone who has the nature of the priesthood or the characteristic of being ordained, okay? So in a similar way, you can say of Jesus, oh man, or ecce homo, as Pilate says, behold the man. But you could also point at him, and you're pointing to the subject, say, that man there created the stars. Now, that's not the same thing as saying his human nature created the stars. That's saying that person who has human nature created the stars. So you're implicitly describing the person. The person of the word created the stars. He did it as God, but he is a man. And so you can say that man there, who? Who? The person of the word. That man there created the stars. But, of course, you can also do this with the divine nature. So you can point at him and say, God, that is God. That person is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord, as Paul says often. And so, when Jesus is crucified, you can say, God is crucified. God was crucified. Or the Lord was crucified. Or they have crucified the Lord of glory. Why? Because the person who's crucified in his human nature, not in his divine nature, is Lord and God. And likewise, you can look at him and say, uh, that person was born of Mary. Who is that person? The son of God. He's both God and human. So you can say God was born of Mary. Okay. The Lord was born of Mary. Or who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And so effectively, you are saying that the Virgin Mary is the mother of God. See, so the pious popular uh instinct of the faithful in this case went to a deep Christological truth. Deep. God became human. God was crucified. God was born of Mary in order to be crucified. And God was raised from the dead, glorified in his human body and soul, in his human nature. In all of this, his human, his divine nature does not undergo suffering, change, rupture. His human nature remains uh, that in virtue of which he's all powerful, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit able to raise the dead in fact right, so jesus can be human and live a fully human life among us he can be subject to death the resurrection born of mary and jesus can also remain lord and god in and through all of that so now you see we're into deep kind of mysteries about the mystery of the about god's presence among us in the incarnation so that's where cyril went the council of ephesus confirmed that the council of ephesus confirmed this kind of practice of the communication of idioms that i'm elaborating for you and the Council of Ephesus taught that the Virgin Mary is Theotokos, our mother of God. Okay, so what I've done is just suggest there's a scriptural foundation for the communication of idioms, and I've laid out basic doctrine, albeit a little fast, but tried to be clear about it in the patristic controversy that gave rise to the teaching that Jesus is truly God and man, or one person who's both human and divine, and that that person was truly born of Mary truly crucified and so we can say uh, she's the mother of god and god truly was crucified in his human nature so you always have to qualify so you can say things like god was crucified in virtue of his human nature or as man 
Um, okay, now I want to just talk a little about Thomas Aquinas' explanations of the divine maternity. And here I'm going to go to another technical idea that I haven't talked to up to, up to now, which is what I'll call, this is my own terminology, but it has a foundation in Aquinas' doctrine, uh, the doctrine of non-reciprocal relationality, or what I'm going to call non-reciprocal relativity. Now, that might sound a little Einsteinian to you. We're going to go into general relativity theory. No, my friends, don't be worried. It's going to be simpler than that. And I assure you, I know nothing important about general relativity theory. This is a much easier, albeit probably more profound idea, simpler but more profound, more vertical and vertiginous, uh, non-reciprocal relationality or relativity. So let's start. There's three instances I want to talk to you about in Aquinas' thought, creation, incarnation, divine maternity. Real simple idea. Creation. God creates and sustains in being all that is. God even now, right now in this actual moment, is giving us the plenitude of our being, all that we are, all that we have as beings, is given to us by God the Creator, sustained in being by Him. So teaches Aquinas. Well, it follows from that that you and I, in our very being, are wholly relative to God in the sense that we depend upon him causally for all that we are. So Aquinas says that creation is a real relation in us. We are really relative in our very being, ontologically relative, relative in being or relative in existence to the creator, because God's giving you all that you are at every instance, sustaining you in being, so you're totally relative to him. The relativity is non-reciprocal because God's not relative to us. Right. So if you were like, you know, had a very high sense of self-importance, you could say, well, when I die, God goes with me. I'm going to cease to be and God's going to cease to be. Well, that would be a kind of cosmic narcissism and that would be impressive in its own genus. But it's totally illusory, totally false. God is not relative to us. He's the creator giving us being. Well, to put it in technical terms, I guess to go back to Bill Monroe Thomism, we ain't giving him nothing. Right. So. You know, it's non-reciprocal because you depend on God. I depend on God for all that we are in our being. He's the creator. We're not. We're created. He is not receiving anything from us or related to us. Now, not everybody believes that. Some people believe God is somehow determined by creation. But Thomas Aquinas doesn't believe that. He believes in non-reciprocal relativity. So this also is true in the incarnation, in Jesus's human nature. Can God become human and not himself be changed in his deity, in his divine nature? Well, it turns out Aquinas says that's precisely what happens. God's human nature, God's human nature, when God becomes human in Christ, is totally relative to his divine nature in the sense that it is united to his divine person. The human nature is divided, united to his divine person and to his divine nature in such a way that he can express his divine identity as God in and through his human nature without the two natures being confused. So, for example, Jesus can reach out his hand and touch a blind person. That's a human act. He can say with a human voice. He can will with his human heart. He can think with his human mind and speak and say, be healed. I will it be healed to the blind man. And the blind man can be healed miraculously by the power of God. The one who reaches out his hand is the Lord Jesus. He reaches out his hand and speaks and wills with the human heart and mind in virtue of his human nature. He heals him miraculously by the power of God in virtue of his divine nature. The two natures are co-active, but one is wholly subordinate to and expressive of the other. The human nature is subordinate to the divine act of healing and expressive of it. God does not need Jesus to reach out his hand, or you could put it this way, Jesus does not, as Lord and God, need to reach out his human hand to heal someone. Indeed, there are cases in the gospel where think healing happens at a distance, like with the Roman centurion's daughter. And our child. <clears throat> and they, Jesus doesn't even go visit the person. It's done from a distance. But Jesus does earlier consent to it at, humanly at the request. The point being that Jesus can do things as God without being human. But often he does things as God and man to reveal to us in his human nature and through it, his divine identity, his divine activity, his union with the Father, his activity in union with the Holy Spirit as both God and as both Lord and human. Or God and man. Okay, so the human nature is totally relative to the divine nature, but the divine nature is not relative to human nature. So it's not the case because God becomes human, God has to change in his divine nature, right? So before 
creation, before the incarnation, God wasn't really fully Trinity or wasn't fully, I don't know, good or moral or perfect or something. And then God becomes incarnate and he, he sort of evolves morally or he becomes Trinity. That's not Aquinas' view. And that's not the tradition of the church. The tradition of the church is God is eternal Trinity and reveals God's identity to us by becoming human. The human nature is relative to the divine nature, but it's non-reciprocal relativity. The divine nature and the mystery of the Trinity is not relative to humanity. Okay, so it's the same thing, sort of, with the divine maternity. Now, let's qualify. In his human nature, in the womb of Mary, the conceptus, Jesus as a, as a newly conceived being, who is both God and human already from the first moment of conception, Jesus as a conceived human being and later as a fetus gestating in the womb of the Virgin Mary, it's both God and human, but is as a as a conceptus, as a fetus, as a child just in the womb, he is totally dependent on Mary for his nourishment, uh, for his sustenance. Later, when he's born, he's dependent on her to be cradled, to be cared for, to be nourished, and eventually also, in some sense, be educated, um, to be initiated into the, uh, the human community. So there's all the normal human dependency of a child upon the mother, which involves not just biological dependency, or nourishment, but emotional relationship, emotional education, um, uh, and a spiritual uh, relationship through human knowledge and human love of the child Jesus as he develops what in what we might consider as a more or less normal human way as, as a human child would. Because God's truly human, he is truly, in that sense, ontologically relative to and dependent upon the Virgin Mary totally as a child is dependent upon his mother but notice all this is in virtue of his human nature okay so as man or insofar as he's human god the lord or our lord jesus christ is totally dependent upon the virgin mary and really relative to her but his divine nature is not changed altered or dependent upon her on the contrary she is sustained in being as a creature a tiny creature of god while God gestates in her womb. Ah, well, what do you mean? She wait, what are you saying? She totally depends upon him, the, the upon the mystery of God. She depends upon her creator while the, the creator gestates in her womb. Yes, because we make distinctions. So, insofar as he's human, the creator, insofar as he's human, God made human, the child, Jesus, in his humanity, depends upon her, gestates in her womb. But insofar as he's God and Lord, he sustains her in being. That's the doctrine of the church, because it's truly God who's become human. As God, he sustains her in being. As human, she sustains him in his human nature. And the church teaches the Virgin Mary is somehow aware of this, even from the time of the Annunciation, because after all, it reveals to her that she was son of God. And Elizabeth says to her, who am I, the mother of my Lord, she could meet Elizabeth's enlightened. The Christian economy is beginning. They're beginning to be aware that somehow, numinously, the God of Israel has become human. The Son made man, the wisdom of God in the womb of Mary. So I've said that the Virgin Mary is, in a way, the mother of this child, the child who's God. What's her relationship to the person? Well, normally, the person is a created person in, in, divine, in all human maternity. You have a, a child uh, conceived in the womb. God creates the spiritual soul of the child immediately, not through the parents. And then you have a spiritual soul informing a human body in the womb of the mother that the child gestates and is born. And then the mother discovers the emergence of the human person, the personality, as the child develops and the activities of intellect and will manifest themselves or unfold through time. And so you can say a child, a mother discovers the personality of her child. And, you know, you watch new parents and they, they see the emergence of the personality of the child and they're sort of fascinated by it. Because it's sort of like them, but really also quite different from them. And as they discover over time, very distinctive, uh, totally autonomous and so forth. But what about in this case with Mary? I mean, it's true Jesus has human intellect and human will. And his little human, you might say, personality features are going to emerge over time. But the person is uncreated. It's the person of the word. So what's interesting in this case is she discovers the person in faith at the time of the angelic salutation. She knows in the darkness of faith that this is somehow the mystery of the person of the Son. It's manifest to her, the mystery. And she can cooperate with it in faith. And so Augustine says, she conceived the word in her heart before she conceived the word in her womb. 
meaning in a certain sense in her intellect, she touched the mystery. She knew the mystery of the person of her child, that is the person of the son or word made flesh prior to or in the time of the conception. And then she can contemplate the gestation of the child in her womb as the gestation of the word or the son of God made human, God among us. And then she experiences the manifestation of the word on Christmas night. And she cradles the uncreated word of God, the person of the word, in her arms. Because the person in her arms is the eternal person of the word made flesh. Right? So the Virgin Mary's maternity is very mysterious and very contemplative because she's in fact engaged with in her own personal maternal life the person of the son the uncreated person god the word made flesh and she is proportioned to that relationship or mystery by the grace of faith now that allows me to finish with the last idea which is you can't do this kind of thing just by natural powers the catholic church is not pelagian it doesn't believe you can come into a living relationship with christ without grace so this is true of everyone, but it's also true of the Virgin Mary. And in a certain sense, of course, it's first and foremost true of her because she's in a unique relationship of being the only one who is the mother of the Lord. So she needs to receive grace early on, primally, you might say, of a very high degree and aptitude to proportion her intellect and will to dispose her to really be, you might say, the worthy mother of God or to be subjectively able to uh, engage with that mystery at the deepest level of her person and to be available for that mystery in an entirely deep, profound way. And so early on in the Catholic Church, in the Fathers of the Church, Greek and Latin, you see speculation about the holiness of the Virgin Mary based on other passages. I named only one, but these ideas of the Virgin Mary's new Eve, these ideas of the Virgin Mary as a plenary full of grace and full in her obedience. And you have a kind of consensus very early on that Virgin Mary is uniquely holy among the saints by the virtues of the grace of Christ, or grace given her in virtue of the passion of Christ, in 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 view of or in foresight of the meritorious passion of Christ. She's given grace that is Christocentric from Christ for Christ, like everyone else. She's dependent on Christ. But her grace is uniquely plenary because of her office, you might say. Well, it's more than an office, really, but of her dignity as the mother of God. And so that goes back to that second idea I started with. The Virgin Mary, as mother of God, also has a certain plenitude of grace to dispose her from the beginning to cooperate with the grace of Christ. And uh, I'll just finish with this idea that Aquinas, when he talks about this, makes a distinction between what he calls the condign merits of Christ and the congruent merits of the saints. The Virgin Mary is going to go in the latter category. He says, the condign merits of Christ are unique to him alone as the only savior of the human race. Only he could, as man, merit our salvation because only he, as man, in his obedience and charity, was also God. Therefore, what he did in obedience and love in his human heart, what he did in his human heart out of love and obedience for us, because he's God, the Lord, has a kind of infinite dignity to it because he's the God-man. And so there's a kind of mysteriously infinite dignity to the merits of Christ crucified. And he mysteriously substitutes his obedience and love for our disobedience and love and merits for us in a condign or a, a way with, with exceeding dignity, our salvation. Aquinas thinks that the merits of Christ crucified are, are infinite in their plenitude because of the dignity of Christ's nature or you know, identity as the God-man. But he says God can also give grace, the grace of Christ, merited by Christ, to the saints, to all the, all the faithful in virtue of baptism or grace working invisibly in the lives of persons, to invite them into sanctifying life and justification and sanctification, and then can invite them to friendship to intercede for others and to do good works for others. And God can inspire them in this way to in, in view of graces he wishes to give others, not because he needs them and not because they add anything to the merits of Christ crucified, but because they are in a certain way the overflow or the, uh, you might say, the organic expression 
like the, the vine and the branches. They're the branches, organic expression of the vine of the cross. The cross lives in the saints of the church and it has an expression in their lives as they become charitable and obedient in conformity with Christ. And God inspires that in them to in turn answer their prayers and good deeds inspired by grace, by Christ, dependent upon him, in view of the rewards God wants to give, not because he needs the saints, because uh, he wishes to conform them in friendship to the mystery of Christ crucified. So they're really not, they're not competitors. They're actually, they illustrate the plenitude and vitality of the cross living in the members of the mystical body of Christ. And, and Aquinas says, the first and foremost among these is the Virgin Mary, who is distinct from all the others because she has a unique intensity of grace conformed in perfection from the first moments of her life to God, uh, to, to, to great by grace to the mystery of Christ in view of the divine maternity, the most perfect disciple who's present at the cross, who's present at Pentecost, who is in a certain sense then the mother of the church in the order of grace. She has this unique kind of intensity of grace. She intercedes for the whole world from the time of the Annunciation and at the mystery of the cross, because she consents in the grace of Christ to the incarnation as a mystery that saves the world. And she consents to the crucifixion as a mystery that saves the world. So this kind of cooperation has a unique extension of universality. And because when she in the perfection of her grace and this unique extension cooperates in these saving mysteries of the Annunciation and crucifixion under grace and in conformity to Christ, she uh, does so in a unique perfection of friendship of Christ or perfection of intensity in those acts of cooperation. So there's ways to start to think about the Virgin Mary, as you might say, centered on Christ and also uh, interceding in a unique way in dependence on Christ for the whole church. And in that sense, she's associated, or it's better to say God and Christ associate her in her prayer with the communication of grace to the whole church. She doesn't add anything to Christ's grace. On the contrary, she's totally subordinate to it, receives from it, and is moved by it. But Christ associates her out of the, you might say, overflowing gratuity of his grace as a certain first sign of the fruits of the cross. And then he in turn associates others in that same work. You could call it almost like the Marian work of the church to intercede and to bring the gospel to others in following Christ, uh, the Virgin Mary, Christ and the Virgin Mary, but the Virgin Mary in a certain way as exemplary disciple of Christ. Okay, so I've spoken for 45 minutes. I've kind of given you a sketch of the biblical roots of the doctrine of the Virgin Mary's mother of God. I've talked about the patristic quarrel between the story of St. Cyril and how that led to the Council of Ephesus. So we can say things like God was cru truly crucified in his human nature. God in his human nature was truly born of the Virgin Mary. Mary is the mother of God. I've talked about Aquinas on non-reciprocal relativity or non-reciprocal relationality with regards to the creation, incarnation, and divine maternity, the Virgin Mary's unique contemplation of her son as the word made flesh that animates her divine maternity spiritually, and the way she's proportioned to that in terms of the inner grace that's given to her by anticipation to be the worthy mother of God, how that can be understood as a unique form of merit that places her in a certain sense alongside us as, you might say, one of the members of the church, but in another sense as a unique member who's associated with the uh, incarnation and the passion in a distinctive and honor, uh, honorable way at, at source. And in that sense, it has a kind of divine maternal role in the church as Christ communicates saving grace to the world. I'm going to now open the floor for questions, if there are any, and uh, be happy to take those. Yes, good evening. Thank you, Professor, for all the insights and uh, many information um, that some we were familiar with and others were uh, as often quite new and interesting. My question is, and I wrote it into the chat as well, in our modern world, might it be acceptable and supportive to try to explain Jesus as human and God in nature at the same time when considering the differences in, in him in time? So I mean, the, the time aspect is important. I mean to say that Jesus as human entered the history of mankind living a human life of the duration of 33 years on the human chronological timeline, Jesus as the Lord, so in the nature of the divine, God ever existed and eternally exists not only for all time, but metaphysically beyond the physical perception of time of a human. So would you say uh, it could be described like that for 
people who um, are not so familiar with the aspects of faith and grace, but uh, first of all need to better understand these two aspects of the nature of the Lord? Yes. So, Suzanne, that's an excellent comment. I largely agree with what you said. I think it's a helpful clarification, and I would consent to it. So, you did say one thing. I think uh, might that might take that might be worthy of a little more examination for precision, because you said, as Lord, He is eternal, while as man, He's temporal. Um, it depends what we mean by Lord, because if we mean by Lord as in virtue of his divine nature or as the eternal Lord, he is not changed in his nature or he's as God, an eternal mystery. That's that's true. If we mean by Lord, the person of the son, I mean, the Lord did enter history. The Lord was human. The Lord was born in a cave. The Lord was lived a human life among us. So um, because that word can refer to a person or to a nature, it depends a little how you how you hear it, I think, in the, and how you use it in the sentences. Um, it's true also what your, you know, your comment is, I think, getting at the idea that um, there are a set of important rational criteria for the affirmation of this mystery, one of which is, at least in on the, the traditional view of the church and Aquinas' view, as one member of the church is important in this respect, the mystery of God is eternal. God is not himself a temporal process. Some people have argued he is. famous person who did was Hegel. And there are others who think that God has in himself some kind of temporal duration. That's not the traditional view. It's not the view of Aquinas. But it, it's, a, it's you know, a thing that has to be kind of discussed and, and in a certain way defended uh, if you want to hold that God's eternal. I do, and you do. The human nature is a human nature like ours in all things except sin. So, when God becomes human, he really lives a human life among us in time. That does not change the mystery of God's eternity or God's eternal divine nature, which is what you're getting at. So the distinction of natures needs to be strongly underscored because it's an aspect of the rationality. Can God really become human? Is that reasonable? If he does, he remains divine. He remains God in all that pertains to God eternally. And he truly becomes human and takes on the real constraints and limitations of our human nature, at least in, in most normal respects. So I think that that's partly what you're getting at, and I appreciate the clarification. Yes, hello, Father. I just have a quick question. Why do we know so little about Jesus, the Lord, between the age of 12 and 30? Like, we only know about his birth and when he was preaching at 12, and then, bam, suddenly he's... 30. And mm -hmm. what do we know about his relationship with his mother during this uh, growth period, I would say? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, let me say a few things. First of all, if you put the four Gospels in the context of uh, ancient biography of the era of Jesus, we have about as much about him as we have about anyone at that time. I mean, the only people who have as much biography written about them at that era would be people like Caesars. So it's somewhat culturally relative. If God chose to become human or to reveal himself in Israel at this era uh, and to work through normal human authors and human means, which it seems like he did, then we're going to get this kind of literature as a kind of maximal output. At the same time, the scandal of the strange minimalism or particularity of getting uh, this sort of limited portrait of Jesus from these four gospels, um, which are the only ones really from the early period. There's a later, you know, um, uh, apocryphal gospels, but they're not, it's not reasonable to posit them of the early period. I, so I think, um, and that's not an eccentric view. Uh, you know, so, you know, is that too little? Did we get too little? Did we get too much? So there's a lot of theological ink spilt about that. And one way to think about it is, you know, divine revelation could be much more vast quantitatively. God could have given us a lot more. Uh, at the same time, he gave us something very discreet. I mean, Aquinas even asked, why didn't God himself write a book? Which is a kind of ultimate question. And he gives very interesting answers to that in Summa Theologiae in the, in the section on Christ's teaching. One of the things he points to there is, in a certain sense, Christianity is not primarily a religion of the book. It's a religion of a person. 
And the Gospels are there to allow us to discover Christ who is now alive, raised from the dead, to know him personally in faith and to follow him. Uh, the book helps. The scriptures speak to us. The Holy Spirit speaks through them. But they are um, ways to discover Christ. A third thing I'll say is the um, there is an asceticism to Revelation. It's a kind of looking. It invites us to a kind of looking and contemplating to what God has revealed and to being attentive disciples to what God has revealed and not to everything or all things. And so there are things we would want to know naturally that we're just not given insight into. As regards Jesus's relationship with his mother, uh, the most we have really, besides the episode when he's 12 in Luke's gospel in the discovery in the temple, is the, are the scenes from the apostolic life. And they're, of course, highly scrutinized by the church. We could wonder if there's at all enough to make some of this doctrinal material important or make it work. All I'll say about this is it's true that there's sometimes you could look at the gospel and say there's not that much about the Virgin Mary and her relationship with Jesus. But the truth is there's about the same amount about Jesus in his relationship with Peter or the Petrine ministry. There's about the same amount about Jesus's real presence in the Eucharist. There's about the same amount. There's even a lot less about original sin. Uh, about very fundamental things like the church, what the church is. So there's all kinds of stuff that's in the doctrinal, you might say, patrimony of the church that we have, you might say, uh, a minimal amount uh, uh, that's obvious in Scripture if we want to just go to Scripture and find chemical proof of it. And that's why John Henry Newman, helpfully, I think, in his great book on the development of doctrine, identifies the fact that theologically we discover the truth of Scripture in and through the tradition. The tradition, the church was never just the scriptures read in church. It was always the church living the mystery that is pointed to by the scriptures, but the scriptures received as apostolic teaching alongside other apostolic teaching lived out in the sacramental mystery of the life of sanctity. So you get a good picture of the early church's belief when you read Irenaeus or you look at Ignatius of Antioch. They're not a substitute for scripture. They're where we see scripture received by the church in her organic life that precedes us. And we have 2,000 years of organic life that precedes us. So even though there's a primacy to scripture and its singularity is an asceticism that we kind of have to fix on and learn from, be attentive to scripture. At the same time, scripture is unveiled to us through the great tradition of the church and her discernments, the lives of the saints, the contemplation of the church, the teachings of the doctors and theologians. And all of that contributes to our own invitation to enter into the mystery and perceive the true mystery. So I just say, yeah, scripture's first, but scripture's read in the church, by the church. And in that sense, we do have a contribution to make. We can be biblical scholars or theologians. We can have original interpretations, but we have to bring them into harmony with the whole life of sanctity, life of learning, life of wisdom of the whole Catholic church. Thank you, Father. Our next question comes from Juliana in Rome. She's asked us to read it for her. She writes, um, I have a question regarding the statement by St. Paul. What does he mean when he says Christ was made perfect? Does he mean Christ lacked any human perfection? Or does he mean this specifically in relation to Christ's priesthood? And why would suffering render him perfect? Okay. I believe this is a reference to Hebrews, which I don't think is written by Paul, but some people in the tradition have ascribed it to him. Um, and which says that Christ was rendered perfect by obedience. Um, this doesn't, this, okay, so certainly this is traditionally taken to be a reference to the humanity of Jesus in his human nature became perfect. There's kind of a twofold question here. Did he become more perfect in the order of grace? Did Jesus grow in grace? The, you know, the vast majority of doctors of the church and theologians and saints don't believe that that's true. Now, I'm not talking about his divinity. I'm talking about the grace he received in his human nature. Jesus in his human nature also had grace. He had a, a fullness of charity and wisdom as man. In his human mind and human heart, he was graced in a certain way to manifest his own divine identity. And I take the view that he doesn't grow in grace because from the beginning, he's both God and man. And so his human nature is fully graced or fully sanctified. But even there, the grace is habitual. That's to say he can perform acts of holiness that he will later eventually perform. And when he does so, in that sense, 
he becomes more perfect because he lives out the mystery of his, you might say, habitual sanctity as man, the sanctity of his human heart and mind. He lives that out in the great saving actions of his apostolic life, his passion and resurrection. And there's a way in which you could also say his human natural suffering is a particularly perfect locus insofar as it's expressive of obedience. It gives him the occasion to express his obedience and his love for the human race in a distinctive way. As Jesus himself says in John's gospel, there's no greater love than that a man should lay down his life for his friends. So our Lord laid down his life for us in suffering and death. And in that respect, he manifests his love, his habitual love, the love of his sacred heart for the human race, the the love, the charity, the fill, the grace of charity that filled his human heart as man. He manifested that in a most perfect way through his obedience in suffering, dereliction, and death. So there's a, there's a certain kind of, yeah, accomplishment of the wellsprings of grace through perfection of conformity to the Father's will. Father, great talk, really. I enjoy all the talk. It, it makes sense, Mary had a level of holiness and grace, like an extra that allowed her to rise the side of God. You know, it's a, I got the point. As a Protestant, really, it's an amazing explanation. Makes sense and accept that. And then what's happened with Joseph? Can we conclude that Joseph shared in some way a similar level of holiness and grace? Because the house, the home need to be full of grace, full of holy to have a healthy uh, uh, place for, for the Son of God to, to grow. Uh, what's happened with Joseph? This is my, my question. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, you know, the, the church considers different questions at different times in history. Okay, so it, you, you say, why didn't they just worry about this question? You just asked the question perfectly clearly. Well, why wasn't that a big concern in the second century or the third century? They were worried about the Virgin Mary's holiness in the second century, the third century, and then especially in the fourth century, when the doctrine of original sin was formulated. Did she commit any actual sins? Most theologians in the fourth century, Greek and Latin, said, no, we don't believe, the church does not believe she committed any actual sins. That's a very strong claim, of course. But that is what, that was a common view. But then they said, well, was she first born in original, conceived in original sin, and then cleansed in the womb, sanated by grace in the womb. Augustine says, maybe it's that. Maybe there's an immaculate conception. Maybe she's conceived in grace with the grace of Christ. Okay, so it's disputed. And that dispute goes on for centuries. And eventually you get a kind of resolution that the, the idea that she, that the grace of Christ anticipates her vocation from the beginning. Joseph doesn't come up until the 16th century. Uh, lots of things just happen at different times. Church debates different issues at different times. Joseph came up in the 16th century. Now, everyone has always held that Joseph is conceived in sin, an original sin, and is redeemed by Christ like us. But the argument of most theologians in the modern period who've considered this in the Catholic tradition is they agree with you. You have the same, you, what you just intimated is the mainstream view of Catholicism in the 7th, 16th, 17th, 18th century as this question began to be considered. Joseph is a sinner, conceived in sin. Sinful tendencies, but in in the engagement with Mary and when in in, in in encountering the Virgin Mary's holiness, but then especially encountering Jesus in the womb, and then the child, the Christ child, God, the God man born among us, Joseph must have appropriately, proportionately experienced the gift of grace sufficient to be a true disciple of Christ and to raise Christ in the home. Well, that must have been a pretty intense grace. And so for that reason, the Catholic Church has traditionally come to the idea that Joseph is especially was especially graced and holy in his human life. He was a redeemed human being, redeemed by Christ, saved by grace. But that grace would have transformed him and sanctified him gradually to a very high degree. Now, there are there's no doctrine of this in the Catholic Church other than the doctrine that Joseph is a saint in heaven now. And that he is a preeminent saint, a great saint. But, you know, there's no like dogmas about it. But it's, you'd say common teaching, common piety, common belief, which has a kind of authority. So you, you have in the Catholic Church a kind of diversity of views. You could say 
you have a stronger, higher view of Joseph, and you'll find pious people say, Joseph must be the greatest of saints after the Virgin Mary. And then you have people who are not as convicted about that. That That's a legitimate diversity of opinion in the Catholic Church. And I don't know, maybe the church will come to some clarification about that. But since it's not a church dividing issue, I doubt that there'll be a doctrine about that. Or there could be one day. Um, but, but I mean, certainly he's esteemed as a great saint. And it's thought that, yes, exactly as you say, he must have been highly graced, not in the same way as the Virgin Mary, but he must have been highly graced uh, so he could experience redemption in Christ and be the um, paternal God adoptive father, the, the, the paternal adoptive father of Christ and raise him in a, in a reasonable, you might say, way of holiness.